Listener Production. And I, I just, my shoulders just relaxed. I took a deep breath and, excuse me, it was, uh, yeah, I, uh, I did it. I made it. So it was, yeah, it was cool. It was nice. It represented the end of an exhausted act that I was tired of playing and I didn't have to play it anymore because the first time in my life I felt like I was enough. Hi, I'm Jess Rowe and this is the Jess Rowe Big Talk Show, a podcast that skips the small talk and goes big and deep. From love to loss and everything in between, I want to show you a different side of people who seem to have it all together in these raw and honest conversations about the things that matter. Grant Denyer is a man of many talents. His TV and radio career spanned over 20 years. And during that time, Grant has become one of the most iconic and loved presenters in Australia. He has the most extraordinary work ethic. He really is one of the hardest working people in showbiz. Now, Grant is someone who seems to have it all. His beautiful wife, Shezzy, three daughters, that incredible career. But as you're about to hear behind all of this gloss, Grant says that he still struggles with not feeling enough. You don't want to miss this chat. Oh, Grant, so good to see you. It's a pleasure to be here. (laughs) Because we caught up at the Logies recently and that was such a hoot of a night. And I did love, there was a moment where early on, before we were get, really getting stuck into the champers, where I said, let's do a sweep. Oh, let's right. do a sweep. <laughs> and I look around and all of us, because it was all creatives at the table, yeah. and it's like, well, who's going to do it? Yeah, none of us have that side of the brain working. No. We're not mathematicians. <laughs> Anyone who's picked up a paintbrush, you know, or consider themselves an artist, maybe you're an actor, whatever, we can't add up. We can't. We no. needed someone like my wonderful <laughs> leopard lady producer, Nick, to sit down and go, okay, this is how we're going right. to make it happen. We can talk to you till you fall asleep, but we can't actually fix any of your life problems. You know what I mean? We Don't ask us to be accountants. No. Or we can't see it through. We can't sort no. of do the step one to two to three to four, which leads me to with you, you are creative. You're always creating something. Mm. Where did that come from, do you think? Um, I think that came from when I was a kid, my mum brings up this story every now and then. I used to do Frank Spencer impersonations. Remember him? Oh, Betty. Yeah, oh, Betty. Betty. The cat did a whoopsie in the lounge room. <laughs> and I remember going in like a, a talent show at school and I had this enormous trench coat. And whenever someone would come over to the house, mum would make me do the routine in front of them, which was probably my first ever performance, really. But then I remember when mum and dad separated, I moved with mum to Melbourne. I was born on the central coast in Gosford, little idyllic coastal community called Avoca. And then when they separated, we moved to, to Dandenong, which was very, very different. And it was a bit scary for a little kid moving away from the place he'd grown up in and it felt safe. It was very leafy. The community always raised the kids, you know, to this place that was big and bustling and very multicultural and I didn't fit in. I didn't know AFL and... I kind of looked around and no one really had a life that I aspired to. No one was living a life where I went, look what that guy's doing. That's cool. I want to do that. 
You know what I mean? So I, so I was sort of scanning my environment, going, what kind of person do I want to be? What kind of life do I want to lead? I didn't see a lot of aspiration in that area. So I kind of thought, I'm going to have to do something about this. I'm going to have to manually build my dream life and I'm going to have to get to it quick smart because it's not going to happen by itself. So, yeah, I had lofty ambitions from a pretty early age. I wanted to rise, rise up out of the community that I was in and I wanted to be something. I wanted to do something with my life, even though if I wasn't quite sure what that was. See, that I find fascinating, that notion of you as a little boy thinking, I want to be something. Again, where does that come from? I mean, your mum worked very hard and there was a story that I read about you, how your mum used to wear a suit Mm. and she'd leave for the office each day. Yeah, she told us she had an office job and uh, we thought she had that job for ages. And yeah, like every parent, she'd put her work clothes on and go to work and she'd come home, we'd see her after her job had finished. Um, But as it turns out, she didn't have an office job. She was a house cleaner and she didn't want us to know that. She wasn't particularly very proud of that. So she sort of hid it from us by dressing up as an office person and then getting changed when she got to work and then would clean houses. And I didn't know that till I was probably early 30s. And it broke my heart. Yeah, it was just, it was so sad to think that she thought that was something to be ashamed of or that wasn't enough. Um, She always created a beautiful environment. Like the house was always full of music. She's a very funny lady. I sort of get, I get my sense of humor from my mom and I get my work ethic from my dad. And together, it's a beautiful combination. And I only realized later in life too, we used to get McDonald's on a Friday night as a special treat, right? And it used to frustrate us because we'd order, you know, our burger and fries and she'd never order anything. And then she'd sort of try and sneak a chip of ours. And we're like, Mom, no, you, look, you had your chance. If you wanted some food, you should have ordered your own. Now, I again, I only realized probably late into my 20s that, um, you know, she, she didn't order anything because she couldn't afford it. So even she couldn't afford McDonald's. But we never felt like the situation was dire. You know, there was always enough food in the fridge. We missed out on things like, you know, buying a magazine or a toy or, um, but birthdays were always full. She's very good with her money and there was always presents and yeah, she did an incredible job. Incredible job. Well, look at you. Of course she did an incredible (laughs) job. But I think the performer aspect, I've, I've been thinking about this recently and it's only just starting to dawn on me that I think perhaps being the son of a divorced couple had some impact on that. I think that not feeling enough, not feeling heard, not feeling seen, uh, feeling like I need to win other people's love, you know, when your parents separated, you know, I think you want to soothe their pain by being entertaining or... By tap dancing. By tap dancing, you know what I mean? Anything. Uh, Being the jokester of the house, something to just make someone feel better. I'm trying to do a bit of work on myself in in this stage of my life and I think that all comes from not feeling lovable, like I'm unlovable, I think is a core value that still operates deep inside me that that I'm trying to work on bit by bit. Hearing you articulate it in that way is phenomenal because you're someone who people love. You are forever the incredible TV host, smiley in your own words, a perfectionist. You do everything with this wonderful kind of polish and pizzazz. Your timing is impeccable, but inside yourself, you don't feel lovable. Oh, God, no. 
No. In fact, you know, enormous imposter syndrome. Still? Um, Do you still have that? Yeah, absolutely. I have very, very low self-confidence. Extremely low. Damagingly low. But I think with that, you can use that as a little bit of fire as well, right? You can turn that into something. You can go, okay, if I don't feel I deserve to be here, then I have to over-deliver. I have to give them my absolute best. And I was never, wasn't a smart kid academically. I struggled. You know, I think probably in hindsight, I probably had a, some kind of learning limitation or disability. Which I, a lot of creative souls have. Yeah. School, you know, is not for creative people. No, just didn't click. I couldn't concentrate. Maths were just numbers that would just jumble on a page and they'd all be moving around in front of me. And I just, I, I couldn't lock any of that down. So I struggled. You know, I cheated in a lot of exams, a lot of homework. I dated a girl the year above me just so I could use all her assignments <laughs> and just change the name. Like I was street smart, but not smart. But I did that out of necessity. I had to just find a way to get through school because I couldn't have done it on my own. And I remember mum and dad, I could hear them in the background on the phone going, what are we going to do with this kid? You know, like, God, he's an idiot. <laughs> He's going to be a, a bin man. Uh, that's about all he's good for. They didn't say it in those words, but I can remember the feeling of they're worried about what I'm going to be in my life and whether I'm what I'm capable of. So that scared me and hurt me, but it fired me up to go, okay, mate, well, then if you've got a limited hand and you're academically not great, then pull a rabbit out of a hat. So I learnt to be useful. You don't have to be the best, particularly when you're learning, but be useful, right? So I would travel on a bus 12 hours from Dandenong to Prime TV, Wagga Wagga. I'd work in my school holidays, washing the news cars, carrying the tripods, asking lots of questions, being useful. Be the guy that people like to have around. Be the guy who is the answer to someone's problem. Um, be there to help. Do more than those that are around you and good things will come your way. That's all I had. That was all my tricks. Uh, in my back pocket. And but you had talent. Let's not forget talent. I remember very clearly when I was reading the news at Channel 10 in Sydney and you were a reporter there and you did this story on Tom Ugly's Bridge. <laughs> and I remember at the time, if anyone would hand it pretty much to any other journo, it would be this dry, droll story. And what you delivered on the nightly news we were in hysterics <laughs> and it was this brilliant story and I'll never forget it because oh I, I remember thinking, who is this person? And I remember that from, I mean, I don't know how <laughs> young you were then, but it really stood out. And I think what you have, that sort of uniqueness to look at something and switch it up and think, well, what can I do to make mm. this magic? Because I, I knew I wasn't a political animal. You know, I, I wasn't that worldly. I, I wasn't into ambulance chasing as a journo, right? So I knew my limitations very early on. When I, when I was at Prime TV Wagga Wagga, I mean, one of the first stories they sent me on, an accident had happened. No journo was around because they were all on their stories. So the, the boss said, all right, GD, it's your first story. Off you go. I go out to this accident and the poor driver had been decapitated. <gasps> and no one told me that this... I walked past a few police officers to walk up to the, to the scene to go and film it for the story. No one had told me that this is what happened. Like, mate, you might not want to go over there or be ready. 
And I get up there and it's a mess. And that was when the penny dropped pretty early. I don't know if this is for me. And I thought it was for me. And it was a little bit heartbreaking because it was like, God, I've gone down the wrong path. My life is covering, you know, this sort of stuff. I, I wasn't built that way. And I could have either backed out of the career then and gone in a completely different direction, or I could twist it. And I go, okay, what are my strengths? Well, I can do stories a little bit differently. And I became the colour guy, right? The cat up a tree guy. And most real journalists, understandably, and rightfully so, you know, look down at those stories. They don't want to touch it. But I think unfairly, because they are the hardest stories to tell <laughs> well. Yeah. And I found joy in creating something completely unusual and wacky and weird. And then when I started at 10, I remember the news directors can be pretty scary, right? Oh, they're hideous. The old school Let's, ones. Mm-hmm. They can make or break your career in a heartbeat. And I had this news director and he would come out. And I, was, I sat in front of his office and he would come out and he always had his hands down his pants, which was so weird. He didn't really want to hire me, but he sort of did and... He said, look, you know nothing. You're from the country. I'm going to have to dismantle you. That colour shit, you're not going to do that here. I'm going to have to turn you into a real journo. And then one day I'm like, I want to sneak in a funny story. And then I found a producer who could help me slip the scripts through, get it passed, get it through editing. <laughs> and I remember watching the bulletin come to air and the news director comes out and I know my story's up next and I'm nervous, I'm sweating. I know he's there. The bloke who said I'd never do colour. My story starts, Nothing. Like his, his face is just plain. He's giving nothing away. I'm dropping jokes, nothing, no emotion. My piece to camera happens. It was pretty quirky. It was out there. Zero, zero response from him. And then the story finishes. He turns around and he goes, that was fucking funny. I want, ah, I want more of that. <laughs> and from that moment on, I had, my, I had the same spot in the news bulletin every night all around the country, right before sport. So that became... You know, I broke away from the rest of the journo pack and and made a name as as being that guy. And more than that, your talent combined with your sheer capacity for hard work has made you a household name. And you spent a lot of time on Sunrise. You won people over as, as the weather guy. But that takes a toll, doesn't it? Those long hours, early starts. Well... At that stage, the executive producer of Sunrise, Adam Boland, rang me because he'd seen me do 14 days straight at the Royal Easter show. I don't think any journo actually knew that I was actually in the 10 newsroom there for quite a while. It was this quiet little unassuming boy that looked like a zero work experience. And no journo wanted to do the Royal Easter show. So I went to the news director and said, give me all 14 days, I'll make them all completely different. And I did. And that's when he rang me and said, mate, I've never seen someone polish a turd better than you. We need you. Would you be our weather guy? And I thought, great opportunity. But at that point, the Today Show had been number one for generations, you know, for decades. Uh, Sunrise hadn't. And I'm a competitive little bugger, probably from the racing part of my life. I was like, how can we beat them? How can we beat the, the Today Show? I remembered coming from a country town because we're a farming family, so out near Wagga Wagga, five generations. Been on the same farm for 113 years and we're still on it. I remember when a TV crew came to town and the whole town turned out and it meant the world to that town and they never forgot that channel. And from that moment on, that's the only channel that whole town watched. And I was like, what if I went around to every town? What if we did like a presidential kind of road trip thing and then town by town, state by state, market by market, 
we can win them over one by one. And that was the key to Sunrise eventually toppling the Today Show and, and, and getting that number one, number one. So even with all of that, you still don't feel enough. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, look, I'm a lot more comfortable in my skin only recently than I used to be. I think in not feeling enough or that you're good enough or you don't deserve to be there, you dig deeper. You're forced to produce a better level of work because you think your entire job is at risk if this next thing you're doing isn't perfect. So the perfectionism kicks in. But do you think that is a way to create your best work? Yeah, I do. Really? It's a painful way to do it because nothing's ever good enough and the stakes are high for every single thing you do because you think your career is going to fall over if you don't do this bit well, right? So it's exhausting. Um, but you hold yourself to a very, very high standard and not a healthy standard, but it served me well professionally. It hasn't served me well personally. So I'm trying to undo some of that. I have a lot of negative self-talk. Like it's pretty, it's pretty horrific in my head uh, how, Still, how I talk Grant. to myself. Yeah. In what way? What sort of things of do you tell yourself? Of course you've done this. You're an idiot. You know, you're, of course this has gone wrong because um, you haven't done that. You know, that person, of course they don't like you, listen to you. You know what I mean? Like, um, yeah, I'm very judgmental in my own mind. It's not the image <laughs> that people think because when they watch you host a game show, you know, you're giving away tons of cash, you're laughing, you're telling jokes. and Well, you're full of beans. You're full of beans, yeah. That's the torture of... High achieving, um, that's a price you kind of pay. I wish it came easier. I wish I could be gentler. I'm certainly trying to instill that in my daughters and make sure that this curse stops with me and that I don't pass that on. I feel that's my number one duty now. And how then do you do that? You say you're doing a lot more work on yourself, but what does that look like and what does that mean? Ensuring that you catch negative thoughts and putting them in their place, pulling them in and going, okay, well, that's, that's my brain talking. That's not the actual truth. Um, my thoughts are deceiving me. Learning to separate um, your thoughts from actuality and that you aren't the sum of your thoughts, right? And they can run away. So that simple exercise took a lot of the power out of those negative words. You know, I could really beat myself up in my head if that goes unchecked. So that pulls the reins on those negative thoughts pretty quickly when I realise my brain is just saying, you know, silly things and that's not necessarily the truth. That's one skill, yeah. And I think it's so important that you talk about it. Yeah. And share it because all of us are flawed. Yeah, None of, of us are perfect. And I know for me, the older I get, I'm far more comfortable with how I mess up and I'm not good at this yeah. or that and I'm gentler on myself. Whereas when I was younger, a little like how you describe... I felt I had to be perfect and that if I wasn't perfect, everything else would come crashing down. But in fact, I've found it incredibly freeing to let go of that, yeah. that need to, oh, I've got to always, what's the next thing and I have to keep doing this. God, well done. So you're not there yet? No. <laughs> I don't. And, you know, I was a, a fast accumulator. I needed milestones to validate my life. Um, so I needed uh, win trophies, you know, on a racetrack, you know, because car racing has been a part of my life win awards in television. I clung on to, to those material things to measure where I was in the scheme of things. So, so sometimes in television, it's hard to understand 
you know, am I doing well? Where do I sit in the scheme of things? Am I succeeding? If I compare myself to someone else, am, am I catching them? Am I above them? Am I below them? Motorsport I found was very f- finite. I know where I stand in motorsport. This is why I liked it, I think. I finished third. I know where I stand. Whereas in television, if your show is not successful, there could be hundreds of reasons why it's not successful. It's not your fault. No. Is it the time slot? What's it up against? The other shows on at the same time, better shows. Who's in it? How's it made? Has the network spent any money on promoting it? Plus, everyone tells you how wonderful you are to your face. No one really tells you the truth. So it's very hard to get an understanding on how well you're really going. You know, I became a, a fanatical collector of Guinness World Records uh, for whatever reason. Again, just more validation. That, that, and that exterior validation. Yeah, exterior validation. As opposed validation. to yeah. on the inside. In television, you know how people say, dress for the job you want, not the one you got. Well, I kind of, I behaved for the job that I want, not for the job that I got. So I would look around and go, um, okay, there's, there's just right, right? Oh, I like how she does that bit. I'll take a bit of that. There's Rove. Oh, okay. I like how he does that. I'll adopt that. There's Peter Overton. I like how he does that. I'll do this. So I made myself a mishmash of just other people's personality traits because I didn't believe I was enough. So I became this cloak of other people and I wore that. And so I kind of just performed how I thought people wanted me to be rather than how I was, which is exhausting. But that's all I knew at the time. And it wasn't until winning the gold Logie was quite profound for me and meant way more than I ever imagined it to be because I could stop and I could go, I'm, I'm enough. I've done it. I made it. I made it. I was so exhausted. I felt like I'd been running on a treadmill with it turned up to 11 my entire career pretending to be what everyone wants and I, I just, my shoulders just relaxed. I took a deep breath and, excuse me, it was, uh, yeah, I, uh, I did it. I made it. So it was, yeah, it was cool. It was nice. And I know a lot of people like to joke about the Logies and, and it means different things to different people, but it represented the end of an exhausted act that I was tired of playing and I didn't have to play it anymore because the first time in my life I felt like I was enough. And you are. Do you still feel like that? You're now like, my shoulders are dropped. Everything else is a bonus and I'm going to enjoy what I'm doing and find the joy in it rather than, oh, yeah. The exhaustion. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's that wonderful feeling and realisation stayed and set. So, yeah, I, I feel completely differently about work now and how I go about work and what I need out of it. I'm much better at finding the fun in it. I'm much better at rolling through the bumps. And, you know, we've, we've had plenty. You know, Shez and I have messed up a ton of times. Um, she's beautiful, your wife. I mean, I reckon she's your rock, isn't yeah, she? Yeah, absolutely. We'd only been together a couple of weeks when I broke my back uh, in a monster truck accident. So she was unfortunately forced straight into carer nurse mode. So that's the dynamic, you know, of our relationship. That's the foundations of it, which can lead to very unhealthy codependency. We're very codependent. We have to try and work on that together. 
the things I put her through during that period were pretty horrific. And she has PTSD from that. That's what the pain meds do to you. I had a terrible time with those pain medications. And And you've been open about your addiction to the painkiller. Yeah, yeah. The things I, I did and said, I'm very humiliated about and embarrassed and ashamed of, but it was a time and I can't change that now and we're okay. But when you're under the influence of that kind of power of medication and in that much pain, when you close your eyes at night, you go into your worst nightmares immediately and it's every night. Maybe your worst nightmare is uh, your partner cheating on you. Maybe it's uh, a home invasion. Maybe it's uh, losing your job, being humiliated. Whatever that is, that happens every night. And when you wake up, you can't differentiate what was real and what isn't. So you think it genuinely did happen. So I would come down and think there was a home invasion. I couldn't walk at that stage with a broken back. I'd be crawling out of my bedroom to fight off people who I thought were there attacking and, and raping shares. So... You know, this, this would happen daily, you know, and a thousand different iterations of the same nightmare. So it was a you know, horrific time. You know. How did you get through that? How did you manage, I suppose, to stop with the pain meds? I mean, the, the awful part of taking those sorts of medications is they are terribly addictive. Yeah. And you don't want to be in pain, but there's that terrible, because they're the opioids, they're shockers. Yeah, people get stuck on them forever. That's when I used motorsport as the carrot on the stick. I needed a light at the end of the tunnel to endure this shit. I had to lie lie flat for four months um, in an enormous amount of pain. And I knew that if I could get back in the race car and win another race, I knew then I could close the book on that horrible period. You see, again, these high things you're setting for yourself. I I mean, most people would go, you know what? (laughs) I just want to be able (laughs) maybe to walk or to, and you're going, no, I want to get back in a racing car and win. Like, I so hope that you give yourself a break. I I mean, that is just like, (laughs) what? I know, and I needed that. In my mind, I wasn't going to be okay until I had won a race again. Since I picked up where I left off and... I got back, won more races than I'd ever won in that year. I was like, okay, now I'm okay. But I used needing to race to get off the meds because obviously you can't have meds in your system when you race. It's illegal. So we get drug tested all the time. So, you know, I forcibly, you know, got off it that way. But it was it was horrible. I went missing in the middle of the night, my undies in Chinatown. Like we had a little apartment in Chinatown. I wanted some scotch one night for whatever reason. Just went wandering around town in my undies to find some scotch. Got lost in the fire escape on the way back to the apartment. Didn't know where my apartment was and fell asleep, at, you know, in the fire escape. And it took Shez three or four hours to find me. You know, just... I can't begin to imagine what that was like for you and what that was like for beautiful Shez. And, and I think, though, for you being open in this way is so good for other people to hear because... Addiction is awful and Mm. it's painful, but we need to talk about it really, I think, for people to get through it and to realise it's impacted you, you've come through it. Yeah, because people, when you go to the hospital, the hospital's very good at treating an injury. So they'll adjust the bone, they'll get it straight, they'll wrap it up and they'll push you out. But they also send you with these life-threatening medications and they don't prepare you what you're in for. They don't let you know the psychotic episodes that come with these things, they don't sit the partner down and go, look, he's going to accuse you of a lot of things here, okay? So just be ready for this. This is how you handle it. None of that happens. 
So they kick you up with these Class A drugs and it just blows your life up. Like, she shouldn't still be with me. Like, well, she loves you. Oh, my God. She loves you. That's why. And you're an amazing team. And I take my hat off to both of you because what I love about what you've both done is that you've reclaimed the narrative Mm. because you were both had ridiculous things written about you in the tabloids and basically both of you came together and said, no, that's not on, and you spoke up about that. Yeah. I accepted this industry. I chose this industry. And therefore, by doing that, you sort of accept the things that go with it. Being written about is a side effect of the career that I've chosen. And I was okay with that. I was okay with people throwing stones at me. But when it started to be throwing stones at Chezzy, I was like, no, that's, she didn't sign up for this. That's not fair. And and it's a lie. And it's I a mean, li- the thing is, yeah. it's nonsense. Most ludicrous things you could ever imagine have been written. And prior to that, we had no power. We had no say. You couldn't fight back. You had no platform to do it on. When you work for a network, they need the magazines to promote their TV shows, so they're not going to let you fight back either, right? So we're, we're victims to the magazines, and they'll just having their way with us, writing horrendous things about us. We created the podcast to be able to go, no, 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 no. Here's the truth. We'll give you the actual truth. And that moment we took the power back and we could correct the narrative, when we had a right of reply, that then stopped all the magazines because we could set the record straight immediately. So we took all their power away and, yeah, it's been good because, yeah, it's really embarrassing, you know, like having some of those headlines written about us, you know, if I've got to go pick my girls up from school, I've got to stand there with the other mums and dads. What are her teachers thinking about me? You know, what kind of house do they think my daughters are growing up in? You know, you're wondering all the time whether the person who's scanning your goods at the supermarket is thinking the worst about you because the magazine that's right next to you as you're checking in has something horrific written on the cover. And I got tired of just living in fear and shame. Yeah. And shame is so debilitating, yeah. isn't it? It's so destructive. And what I've learned over time too is that what matters most is what the people who you love, what they think. Mm. You have no control over everyone else. So you almost have to let a whole lot of stuff go. Which is difficult because when, you, when I make television, and I've always done this, I put myself in the lounge room of that person and go, what would they like to see? If I've got this moment here about to happen, how do I make it so good that it gives them an awesome experience, right? So I think my duty on television, because I think I grew up, you know, in a a simple home, television was an escape for me. It took me away to a faraway place, took us away from our troubles, showed us magical things, made you laugh, no matter how crap your day was or whether you can afford to pay your rent or maybe you want that bike, but you you, you know that no one's going to be able to afford that bike, right? You watch television, you forget about all those things. It's magical. It can make you feel good when you're feeling shit. And that's a real privilege, right? So I try and dial every moment up and go, okay, how do I, how do I give that person who's decided to sit on their couch and they're invested in, they've chosen my show. So I owe them something. I owe them a good time. And I love the power of taking people's mind off their troubles, right? But with that, yeah, comes, uh, comes the twist of perfectionism and the pain of, of having to do everything really, really well. But then also knowing that if people are reading these I know what they're thinking. 
as well. And even when people say, no one believes those, a little bit sticks. A little bit sticks. So that's why we, we put our dukes up and we fought back well, and won. Yeah, and good on you. Just finally, I mean, what are you going to do next? <laughs> <laughs> You've done it all, but what are you going to do next? What do you want to do? Um, I'm really satisfied with what I've achieved. I'm very proud, really, really proud. You are enough. Yeah. Can we say I'm that? Enough. Yay! I am enough. <laughs> I love hosting, but I'm creating now. So I'm, I'm creating different TV shows. I've always been too busy making them to create them. And now I'm curious as to whether I can and I'm creating shows. So um, I've just done a couple of deals with production companies and I've got a show at Channel 9 now. Hopefully uh, they say yes to that. And yeah, so creating shows for others to shine in. Yeah. I cannot wait to see this next chapter that you have for all of us. And I hope you realise that you owe it to yourself now and to your beautiful girls to enjoy it. Yeah. To actually sit in the moment and yeah. go, yes, this is what it's about. Yeah. Because prior to that, it was never enough. Even having the most was still never enough. So until I changed that mindset, and now I just find so much more peace and joy in every single day. The sun's shining. I wake up. My body works. You know, being thankful for that. When I stand in the shower and each morning I go, you know, thank you feet for carrying me here to the shower. Thank you legs for holding me strong, you know, so I can stand up and I can run and chase my dreams. You know, thank you back for keeping me proud and protecting my organs, you know. Thank you brain for helping me figure out these scenarios so I can wiggle and squiggle through life and end up where I am. The power of including a little bit more gratitude, which I never really had before, has been a game changer. Yeah. Oh. Well, you're amazing, but even the way you do that, it's very high achieving too. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Thank so you right. all the different parts of your body. Sorry, kneecaps. I miss kneecaps. <laughs> Ankles, you're beautiful as well, nice and slim. And my earlobes. And just <laughs> it's miss any part. It's just like, just... Calm it down. <laughs> just calm it down. Just a simple, well I, done. Exactly. I just daydream in the shower and then I get the girls going, what are you doing in there? Get out. <laughs> I hated my body, to be honest. Being a smaller guy, the ladies never talk to smaller guys. You know, when you're a young teenager trying to, to impress the opposite sex, you, you know, you never really, there's always the big jocks that got to look in. And plus you get picked on a lot, right? So, yeah, I had a lot of embarrassment around being small. So I never looked at my body with love. Um, but now when I go, hang on, look what that body's done for you. Oh, my God. What, you done three Bathurst 1000s with that body? That's a good body. That's, oh, yeah. It's delivered. Yeah. Well and truly. Yeah. Well, you have delivered, Grant. Thank you. My pleasure. This was lovely. Wow. What a chat. I so love sitting down with Grant. And wasn't it wonderful how open he was? I just want to give him a big hug, though, and say, you are enough. Should we all shout that wherever you are? You might be in your cars, you might be walking your dog, whatever it is you're doing, you are enough, Grant. <laughs> and that's my wonderful leopard lady, my producer Nick in the background, also saying you are enough because you know what? All of us are enough. And I think that for me was a real lesson, listening to that interview with Grant and also realising that over time in my life, when I've been a perfectionist, there's so much pressure that I put on myself and I thought I had to be perfect, but now that I've let go of that, life is so much easier. Let's just be gentler on ourselves. So Grant, be gentle on yourself. 
even when you're in the shower. <laughs> now, if you want to see Grant in action, the amazing race, which he does with his beautiful wife, that is coming soon to 10. Now, Grant also hosts his own podcast, which is fabulous. It's called It's All True, and it's straight from the horse's mouth account of life with the Denyers, where he and his wife, Chessie, they open the book on their marriage. And as you know, Grant shared with us, so much of it is made up in the tabloid. So it's a chance for them to really set the record straight, but also share some really special moments in their lives. So do not miss that podcast called It's All True. Now, for more big conversations like this, one that I just had with Grant, subscribe to the Jessro Big Talk Show podcast because it means you will never, ever miss an episode. And if you're moved by what Grant and I were talking about, there are some topics there that really resonated with you because I know a lot resonated with me, why not send this episode to a friend? Because none of us want to be going through life alone, do we? We want to be sharing these experiences. And if you love this episode with Grant, I reckon you'll really enjoy my chat with Rove. There were times when, you know, I couldn't set foot outside the house or if you turned up somewhere, you know, that all heads would turn and everyone would come to talk to you. And that's a very, I find and found and do find that to be a very uncomfortable position to be in. When I'm performing is different. So that's my way out of it, is to, when people come up, it's, yeah, I'm cracking gags and, and being a goof. Because it's, I guess it's a way of covering the awkwardness. The Jess Rowe Big Talk Show is hosted by me, Jess Rowe, executive producer, Nick McClure. She's a wonderful leopard lady. Audio imager, Nat Marshall. Supervising producer, Sam Kavanagh. Until next time, remember to live big. Life is just too crazy and glorious to waste time on the stuff that doesn't matter. <laughs>